When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. In today's episode, we welcome our very own co-host, Dr. Takeshi Morisato. His new book, Tanabe Hajime and the Kyoto School, Self, World, and Knowledge, was just published by Bloomsbury. This book is an introduction to Tanabe Hajime, one of the most important figures in Japanese philosopher, uh, in Japanese philosophy post-war. His philosophical ideas cover a wide range of topics like the logic of species and philosophy of death. Um, Takeshi is a scholar of Japanese philosophy. He is currently working at Catholic University Leuven in Belgium, leading a series of editing projects. Um, as well as uh, a series of uh, publications at the Chisokudo publication. Apparently, he's also an expert of sake. <laughs> so welcome, Takeshi. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Jingyi. Uh, it's great to be on the other side of this uh, uh, interview. I'm always like on your side and I'm really nervous about it all the time, but now it's good to be in the guest side. Thank you. Great, great to have you. Um, so what do you research about? I know you're a philosopher, but uh, how did you become interested in Japanese philosophy? Mm. I mean, I think I gave a little bit of similar um, answer to the similar questions in in, in, uh, in another episode. So um, I would highly recommend you to uh, <laughs> listen to that video as well. But in this video, maybe I will talk about um, the the kind of um, despair uh, that PhD students usually experience, I mean, across the humanities, but especially in the field of philosophy. And I think a lot of us has this, you know, experience where uh, each discipline has its own hallmark or considered to be the canon, right? Whatever field that you go into, history department, Japanese studies department, Japanese uh, literature department. I, I, I felt uh, when I was doing a PhD, um, that force was incredibly strong in the field of philosophy. Uh, we had 120 PhD students in one department at the Catholic University of Leuven, KU Leuven, and we have 35 professors working on different vistas of philosophy, um, but I was the only one person working on non-Western. Uh, philosophy, like not nothing, you know, not 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 even East Asian, but also uh, non-Western. Um, so I started to feel like I need to find some topic where I can relate to from the side of my training in history of European philosophy, but I have to be able to contribute some sort of historical scholarship. Um, you know, I, I could see myself working on German idealism. I could see myself working on German philosophy or even expand to existentialism. 
and Russian philosophy, but there wasn't anything that I felt, oh, we still need to do this. I, I felt like it's so much has written on, on the topic. Um, so I consulted my supervisor and said, hey, I'm, I'm actually thinking about maybe I go into uh, Russian philosophy. And then my supervisor said, no, like, I think you should look into some of the Japanese philosophy because I read a few translations from 90s and 80s and 90s and, and only bits and pieces available. But it was very fascinating. So, um, and also my supervisor kind of treated me like a colleague other than the like supervising the student. So it's like, okay, I, I want you to actually explore the field that I don't, I know nothing about. Um, so it was a kind of, um, you know, the desire to be a little bit liberated in terms of topic and methodology, a uh, methodology, sorry. And, um, and I think that was one of the drive and, you know, obvious um, personal, um, background <laughs> you know like if you're being japanese studying japanese philosophy seemed to be natural um course of you know uh development but back then it wasn't really a part of my um mind um you know i grew up with some of the stuff but you know i knew names but i never thought that i would actually specialize in this field but um at the end i i i'm really blessed with this field uh there's so much to be done um, you know, the Tanabe Hajime is far from being done. Uh, even the major names like Nishida is still like we don't have a, a translation of complete works and general understanding of what he was trying to do is uh, even difficult for Japanese academics to understand. So that was the kind of um, general description of uh, the reasons why I, I'm moving into this direction. Um, maybe last thing, just a lip service to my colleagues. Um, I think a lot of scholars in the field of Japanese philosophies are usually really nice people. <laughs> like if you go into philosophy department, you can imagine competitiveness and, you know, you have to excel in a specific uh, topics, but the it's almost like everybody was isolated so, like, there are few scholars in Spain, few scholars in Germany, few scholars in Holland. And when they discover that, they, oh, my gosh, there's somebody like me. Um, so we started to kind of unite together and work together. And that's how uh, I started to enjoy this field. That's amazing. Um, yeah, I, I totally fear you. I didn't really know that there were many scholars working on Japanese philosophy until I started interviewing them. So we had uh, Dr. Heisig and we had Dr. Murado, um, who are kind of scattered around the globe. Um, so yeah, definitely feel you there. So I'm really glad that uh, Bloomsbury is having this series. Um, we are about to feature um, another book about D.T. Suzuki soon. So yeah. Picking up the pace, um, yeah. Japanese philosophy. Yeah, so I think that Jim Heisek and Joe Maraldo are the like the sort of the first generations when everybody said there isn't such thing as Japanese philosophy, and all the Kyoto School philosophies are really like fascist, you know, like uh, supported this Japanese imperialism. Imperialism, you should never actually touch them. Um, and I think I went through a little bit of that when I was growing up in Japan. Um, but then from their generation to my generation, there's about maybe one generation between, uh, I would say, like in terms of the scholars. And then they are the ones that have worked much more on the topic of um, 
can can there be a Japanese philosophy? Can there be non-Western philosophy? Uh, also, you know, political implications of Kyoto School philosophies. Um, also, from the perspective of Japanese studies, is it like should we study the Japanese philosophy as a part of intellectual history in Japanese studies or not? Um, and I think. A lot of the second generation didn't get a job. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> or like they're not teaching Japanese philosophy for sure. They're doing something else and doing Japanese philosophy on the side. And only a few of them actually survive as the scholars of Japanese philosophy and teaching Japanese philosophy. And I think my generation was kind of left with this sort of like, like empty space. It's like there was nobody that can give me any kind of guidance um, about my project when I was working on PhD onwards. So, you know, I started to ask people in Paris, like, hey, I need to work on Japanese philosophy. Do you know anybody? And they said, you should go to the French-speaking part of Belgium, or you should go to Holland. And all of them pointed to Nanzan and Jim Heisex. So basically, in 2013, I was looking for somebody who I can work with, and then jump the entire generation to actually work straight with Joe Maraldo and Jim Heisek. And yeah, so that's the kind of the feel of the, you know, feeling of the field. I think now it's more united, but I, I felt when I started, it was quite scattered around. Yeah. Indeed. And mm. a lot of their work also focus on uh, the Kyoto school, um, sim- uh, same as your um work, Tanabe Hajime, was also an important figure of the Kyoto School. So can you tell us what is the Kyoto School and why is it so important in the history of Japanese philosophy? Yeah, so what is Kyoto School is actually quite contested um, for several reasons. Um, So the very famous Ohashi Ryosuke, who is the last one of the surviving members of the Kyoto School, uh, his definition of the Kyoto School is probably the narrowest, very narrow definition of the Kyoto School. Um, then I'm going to expand to other definitions. And I think it's a, it's a kind of polyvocal definitions. So it's not going to be one definition that satisfies everybody's questions, anyone that who has this question. Um, so Ohashi Ryosuke is definition is like he talks about the philosophers in Kyoto so that the kind of the group of intellectuals that are hung around in, in at the Kyoto Imperial Universities and surroundings and some of them actually moved to Tokyo so like the Watsuji Tetsuro moved to Tokyo Tosaka Jun moved to Tokyo Miki Kiyoshi moved to Tokyo so you have a huge chunk of the so-called Kyoto school uh, kind of moved to Tokyo and then started to work with other ones and even Tanabe who came from uh, originally from Tokyo was actually doing I think PhD in in, he did a PhD in Tokyo but he was teaching Tohoku University and came to Kyoto so there's a kind of like loose um, binding of what counts as the people who hangs around in Kyoto School, uh, Kyoto Imperial University or University of Kyoto in, in today's term. And I think if you look at these names, it's actually quite fascinating, fascinatingly expansive. For instance, there's one guy, his name is, his name is Tani, Tanikawa Tetsuzo. And he writes about 
um, kind of like anthropological, philosophical anthropology of like philosophical reflections on what's going on in Japanese culture. He writes about like a sento, like a spring, uh, hot spring at the, well, I'm kind of blanking out the English word, um, hot spring, right? And he talks mm-hmm. about that. And there's the people who write about tea, literature and all that. And Tanikawa Te- Tetsuzo's son is actually Tanikawa Shuntaro, who is the most famous like poet from contemporary Japan. So, you know, those intellectuals kind of hang out in Kitakaruizawa in the summer as well, because the summer in Kyoto is awful. So you have this sort of like group of intellectuals that kind of hang around. Um, so Ohashi Rosuke said, that's not Kyoto school. Basically, he said, that's a philosophers in Kyoto, a philosophy in Kyoto, that you, you have this loose um, bundle of intellectuals. But the true Kyoto school philosophers are the ones that work with the concept of nothingness. So he makes the clear cut between that. And then he says, this person works with this concept of nothingness and these are in like talk about it, but they didn't really actually develop the concepts uh, to the extent where they can actually represent themselves as philosophers of nothingness. And James Heisek kind of runs with that idea as well. Uh, But I find it to be quite problematic. Um, I, maybe because I'm, my approach is much more genealogical. So like when you look at the, even the peripheral figures, like Watsuji Tetsuro, there's like, major implications that he's actually engaging with some of the concepts of the Kyoto school philosophers are working on. Also, like, you know, if you pick up Tanabe and he doesn't name Watsuji, but there are sections where he's obviously talking about how his conception of species shouldn't be the same as Watsuji Tetsuo's Aidagara or betweenness or interrelations. So even within these figures, you can see a kind of correspondence, a named correspondence between uh, different thinkers. So I do feel that the definitions of the Kyoto School should be a little wider than uh, these big names like James Heisek and Ohashi Yosuke thinks. Um, so to me, I think it's still open question. I, I think what counts as the Kyoto school? Uh, is it does it make sense for us to actually use just one concept and say this is what they represent, including the criticism, right? That if the, the certain reading of Kyoto school states that they are aiding the uh, imperial Japan or imperialism of Japanese government during the World War II, even in that reading, I, I think there's always the exceptions and, and, and kind of subtleties of differences between one position from another. Um, so I tend to uh, take a little bit more genealogical approach. Uh, that's also another reason why I worked on Tanabe, because everybody was working on Nishida. Yeah. Like 80% of Kyoto School philosophy specialists working on Nishida. And I was, I was thinking, like, that's... This is something that Shimomura Toratoro talked about and James Heisek uses as well. Like the reason why we have a Kyoto school rather than Nishijian school of thought is because there's a Tanabe who criticize. So I think another definitions that maybe I can provide is this group of intellectuals that criticize against each other. Like they, they actually read each other and, and tried to 
provide constructive criticism against each other to develop each of their own um, intellectual framework of thinking. And then by historical necessity, it has to be cross-cultural. Like it has to be cross-cultural. None of them are doing purely Anglo-European philosophy. Even the ones that are working on history of European philosophy has very comparative like flavor. Um, so, you know, for instance, the, somebody like uh, Hatano Seichi, who is the pure Kantian European, like scholar of European philosophy, uh, when you look at his um, magnum opus, there's a trilogy of philosophy of religion. It's very European, but one of the most famous one has a certain reading that just doesn't sound like authentic European philosophy. Um, so I think that's the, maybe that's that's the kind of uh, you know wrong way to. Um, run away from the, the question of what counts as a Kyoto school and this attempt to provide this univocal response to that question. It just seems like I just need to know the whole picture and then the whole picture seems to kind of expand wider to the point. Um, you know, Kyoto school is just a group of thinkers that use this comparative approach or cross-cultural philosophical approach to uh, philosophical questions Um Maybe that I'll I'll just leave as that. <laughs> you and, raise you yeah. raise some very interesting points that I want to um, come back to later. But I have to admit I don't know half of the figures that you just mentioned. So for the sake of um, well, since Japanese philosophy is uh, seldom taught in Japanese studies too, um, so for the sake of our audience who might not be familiar with this topic, can you briefly tell us about Tanabe Hajime? Uh, who is he? What did he do? What were his main arguments in his philosophy? Yeah, so um, this book is precisely built for that. Uh, so the Bloomsbury Introduction to World Philosophy is basically set up in such a way that uh, instructors in Japanese studies or instructors in philosophy that are, you know, suddenly th- thrown this into this opportunity or ordeal <laughs> where, hey, somebody has to teach intellectual history of Japan. Somebody has to teach, uh, you know, uh, post-war contemporary Japanese thought. Teach something, um, you know, and you've never been exposed to that uh, that field. This text is actually built for instructors to be able to pick it up and use it as a base for teaching the class. So, um, original idea was, was to like pick up the key key concept like the world, self, and knowledge that you would typically talk about in in, in the philosophy classes, and pinpoint their concept. Um, so that's the philosophical response to your question. So if you're teaching Japanese philosophy, this series is actually set up in such a way that you can pick any uh, non-Western intellectual traditions and you you should be able to actually start teaching the class. Or as a student, you should be able to actually get the concept from these books. Now, um, so that's just the formal framework response to your question. So from the field of... Japanese studies, and I also work in Japanese studies, um, so I'm, I'm kind of interdisciplinary in this regard. Um, 
The best way to describe Tanabe Hajime is somebody who studied German idealism and neo-Kantian philosophy slash feminology, uh, very contemporary German philosophy. So this is in general Kyoto school, but including Tanabe. This study these figures to the extent that are almost as good as a specialist of German philosophy in Germany. So they, they just study German philosophy. Uh, they took he- Kant and Hegel so seriously to the point where they just read it like this is the what you should study as intellectuals, right? Then they're incredibly dissatisfied. So they studied the history of European philosophy. They didn't like the ways in which it's been done and they felt extremely foreign. It's a little bit double-edged. So they, they felt very comfortable. So they never, it's never like, oh, I'm Asian and I'm reading European philosophy, so I don't feel, um, you know, connection with that. No, they're very intimate to the European intellectual traditions to the point they felt extremely comfortable with European philosophy, but they felt that their own intellectual traditions had something to offer that European intellectual tradition didn't have resources to or uh, prior discussions. Uh, just as like East Asian intellectual traditions don't have access to the monolithic framework of the divine absolute and religion, like in, in Judeo-Christian tradition, Judeo-Christian tradition didn't have access to some of the resources that are available in Buddhism and Shintoism. Not so much Shintoism, but definitely Buddhism and Confucianism. Um, So that's something that he started to bring back in. So um, logical species is a little bit more metaphysical critique of German idealism. Um, So that's the place where rather difficult to bring forward the comparative and cross-cultural flavor. But uh, philosophy as a metanoidics, it's very cross-cultural. Uh, it's almost like a reading history of European philosophy of religion, uh, especially Judeo-Christian tradition, and Pureland Shin Buddhism in Japan slash some Zen flavor. Um, and then try to respond to the questions like, like nihilism. Um, so sometimes I teach the Japanese existentialism course. Um, you know the the questions that I usually ask students is like, how can we come to a consensus that the world has a meaning or good meaning or ethics has undeniable foundation when you get rid of all the classical framework, including God, right? So if you deny any of these conservative values in in metaphysical terms, and what can we do uh, in a contemporary society? And I think within the European intellectual framework, it's either or. Uh, it, It goes to a kind of apologetic, conservative, uh, Christian fideism, in one sense, right? That's possibility. You just go back to the traditions. We should read Neoplatonism, and we should go back to the Christian uh, metaphysics and just become advocate of faith. Or you just go staunch uh, 
nihilist, <laughs> you know, like uh, secular, sec secular uh, postmodernism, right? And then both options just seems strange to contemporary Japanese philosophers um, because they struggle with the same questions as the secular nihilist of contemporary philosophy, but at the same time, they have this affinity with this a kind of sense of um, objective truth or, or the kind of the ethical values that we can actually robustly ground and say, you know, like friendship is important thing. You know, love is the most important thing. It's very difficult to say if you have this postmodern secular nihilism, but I think Kyoto school thinkers are capable of managing to talk about that without, um, you know, going back to this sort of um, reverting back to the uh, traditional fideism, basically. Yeah, that's the. I think that's the easiest way to think about. Uh, maybe another. Maybe another angle would be try to take seriously the conception of the of the world as being absolutely con contingent and finite. So how do we how do we embrace that? You know, like we want to believe that the like the, each individual life has absolute meaning and uniqueness. Um, and then you, if you read a contemporary postmodern philosophy, all of them said that's that's a delusion, right? Like the Buddhists would say that's a delusion. Um, so the Kyoto school thinkers would just say, okay, we would agree that there is fundamental uh, finitude or radical contingency of human existence. But can we still talk about values? And I think Kyoto school thinkers would say, yes, we, we should be able to talk about those values and you know, we should be able to actually live our lives uh, virtuously or ethically in whatever way um, you frame it. Um, yeah, so, you know, it, it sounds really abstract, but it goes to the lot of questions like, what's the point of um, recycling and doing what is good for the nature if the world is coming to an end? You know, <laughs> and the Kyoto School thinkers would say, no, it's absolutely vital for you to actually care for nature care for the world, even if the world is coming to an end, something like that. So you do have environmental ethics and uh, so on and so forth. That's fascinating. And is this where uh, Tanabe's philosophy about self and no self comes in? Yeah. So the, the conception of self and no self is very um, interesting because um, it is Basically, what they mean by no self is is a kind of selflessness in positive term. So it's not this typical imagery of Buddhism as being detachment that you need to stop feeling anything and deny the world. Uh, it's not that kind of empty, uh, like empty in a negative sense of emptiness, but it's very saturated selflessness, selflessness where they argue that if you realize that you can't hold on to yourself forever as something undeniably at the absolute and condition, once you realize that your life is being conditioned, you should be able to re recognize the infinite possibility within yourself, uh, as well as your relation to others. So like the vector shifts from this self-centered way of thinking, how should I define my life, myself? What's the worth of who I am? To... It's like realizing that 
the worth of who you are as limited. And because of that realization, somehow you become limitless. Uh, somehow you'll be absolutely well connected to the world. So maybe like use an example of recycling, right? We recycle the all the plastics, all the materials so that the world becomes nature, like we become more sustainable in the world. But if the whole motivations behind making the world sustainable is for us to thrive and keep our ways of being, Kyoto School thinkers, including Tanabe's conception of no self, would argue that that's self-destructible. Uh, this is like Jizek argues like recycling. If you recycle in such a way that we consume more, that's, that defeats the whole purpose of recycling. Uh, I think it's something similar. Is like you have to do the act of selflessness, like do the act of self-sacrifice for the sake of other people. But somehow doing that, it would ultimately serve your end. But you have to not intend that to happen to yourself. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like your, your life is going to be infinitely better if you actually help other people. But if you th- think about that in, in, in doing so, then you're not doing it right. Um, so that's, that's the difficulty of no self. So having the ultimate sense of self by letting it go. That's what they mean. Like you have to let go of yourself, then you should be able to actually recover yourself. But how, um, you know, Nishida, obviously he was a Zen master, like he practiced Zen intently. So he was very religious and and practiced Zen meditations to the point where he could actually describe almost like what it is like for him to be in that state. Um, and you know the examples, the typical examples Nishidian actually gives is um, sometimes art or like um, um, martial art, like the kudo. Um, it's like the master of kudo, like the uh, bow and arrow, feels that if you in this moment of no self, you feel that you're not aiming as a single individual target and trying to hit this arrow from point A to point B, but the, the almost like you feel that the arrow actually hits the target on its own spontaneously. Now, Kimura Bin has much better description of this. He also calls it metanoesis. He said, he's a pianist. He's a, he's a psychoanalysis, he did the Kyoto school uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, Kimura Bin basically argues there's a three sense of music First sense of music is an objective music. You just look at the musical notes and try to, f- to play that notes. So you're trying to get this technical precisions to actually play the notes on an, and people playing together. Just everybody's trying to stick with this objective notation. Second one is like you have a really good musicians in a group and then there's the ones that are not so great in a group. So the good ones are kind of pull the bad ones to participate in this music but there's still this sense of this ideal music to which everybody's trying to get to he said the best performance and actually i verified with a few musicians about this feels this like energy of a music that when you play like you're not playing but the music is actually playing through you and actually music is sounding through every single one of the orchestra members but none of them 
the music is not reducible to any of them, but it's kind of resounding through them and music through musicians and sounds through musicians. And he says that's the moment of no self, you know, like the metanoesis. It's the turning of the self from the sense of self-centeredness to this ability to perform um, music. Um, yeah, so I think um, what is really interesting about Tanabe, he flips the argument by saying nobody's as good as that. Like, actually, all of us are horrible musicians. All of us are horrible ethicists. Like, we talk about ethics, but we're ethically really impaired. Uh, we talk about ideal world, but we fall short from the ideal to the most drastic extent, right? Well, we live in, in Europe with this uh, uh, war in, in, in Ukraine, so we know that <laughs> in the pandemic. So we live in, in this world of chaos and ability to actually live up to the ideal. And his argument is that if we realize that, that we are absolutely imperfect, that realization is as good as that music resounding through ourselves. So he kind of flips this perfection into imperfection. So realization of imperfection is the perfection. And that's the conception of no self. And that requires metanoesis, which means conversion or transformation. Yeah. That is very fascinating, and I can totally how it's possible to write a series of books on, say, the Japanese art of archery or piano or cycling based on these philosophy. But um, there's one point that you mentioned earlier that I want to return to. So the Kyoto School has been heavily criticized after the World War II for its intellectual connection with fascism. And like you said, um, the Kyoto, many Kyoto School philosophers uh, got a lot of influence from German philosophy. So um, what aspects in the philosophy of the Kyoto School manifested in the fascist thought pre-war? And did the intellectuals of the Kyoto School try to stop it from leading to total war? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. See, I think... This is like one of the most difficult questions for me to answer. Um, it would be the easiest for me to respond to these questions when there is a point of reference. So if, um, you know, I'm just blanking out some names. So one person criticizes Watsuji on these concepts, then we can talk about it Um you know, if one person talks about Nishida's famous um, text on the principle of the new world order, we can talk about the principle of the new world order, how it was revised from the original manuscript and the the process in which it was published and how the military government actually responded to the publication. I, I think those questions are much more helpful uh, to give you more clear answer of yes or no. Um, so it's a lot easier for me to defend or um, exonerate or just say this is as good as it gets, <laughs> but they are guilty um, with, with the specific cases. But if it is a broad, and also I'm a philosopher, so it's important to actually deal with these broad questions as well. And with the broad questions of whether or not Japanese philosophers from 1930s and 40s are fascist, most of them, 
uh, who survived the test of the uh, who survived the academic system, they're capable of publishing these philosophical works. Uh, were they fascist uh, or not? To that question, if you read their text as a contemporary Japanese reader and you speak Japanese language in a contemporary society and you read the, like all the intellectual works that are being published or publishing your intellectual works in a contemporary Japanese language, yes, I think all of them would sound fascist. It's absolutely. It's like almost like trying to find your grandparents that are not racist. <laughs> you know, it's very difficult. Like, grandma... I don't think that's appropriate for you to say that anymore. Like it's okay in the family members to say, but if you say in in the public setting, you cannot say that. Um, so if you read like Watsuji or if you read Nishida, if you read Tanabe with this sense of intellectual works that are um, embedded in contemporary society, um, you know, many of my colleagues in the past said like really fascinating, Watsuji is saying really fascinating, but I don't like the way he writes. You know, uh, what Tanabe and Nishida is saying, really fascinating, especially if you actually explain it to me. But when I read it, I, I, it really bothers me of the ways in which they talk about these concepts or the words. Um, so it, it, at least at the textual level, I do feel it's not possible to exonerate them from uh, having any ethno-nationalistic flavor. Uh, let's say just ethno-nationalistic flavor just to tie with the uh, fascism. That's the textual level. Now, from the intellectual historian or the Japanese studies department, I think it's crazy to argue that the Kyoto school thinkers are basically the same as other hardcore right-wing ethno-nationalists from Japan in 1930s and 40s. So uh, you have a Muneda Muneda, uh, Muneda uh, Minoda Muneki, right? Or Kano, Kanokogi Nobuo, like imperial waste, who is arguing for the Koktai uh, no Meicho and, you know, Koktai no Shingi, where the emperor should become the sovereign of the state and she should, he shouldn't be the organ or the institutions that stands in opposition to the people represented by um, the cabinet, right? The, the parliament. These imperial wastes are crazier than you can ever imagine. Like, I think it's, they were actually crazier than European fascists. I mean, they literally had this mythological mythological elements that are not present in, in European um, fascists. So to that extent, I think it would be a grave error as an intellectual historian to tie these right-wing imperial wastes and just... Kyoto school thinkers together because there are historical evidence stating that these right-wing imperial imperialists wanted to actually arrest Kyoto school thinkers and some of them actually got arrested. So um, the great book is this Ohashi Ryosuke is the book that I'm actually currently translating uh, Kyoto school and, and Japanese Navy. Um, that's the book where he goes into this secret meetings that Jap- Kyoto school thinkers had with uh, Navy officers to plot the uh, against the army government, right? So it's already delicate. Um, did they actually work with military government? Yes, they did. There's a historical ed- evidence stating that they actually collaborated with um, Navy officers, but were they 
as crazy as the imperialists from the right-wing army affiliated uh, imperial waste? I don't think so, because they're already talking about the loss of war in uh, mid-1940s. They, they never thought that Japan would win. They always talk about when Jap- Japan needs to um, actually end the war as soon as possible. Um, so... It's a delicate topic, right? Even in today, like the Russian intellectuals, what they're saying about the Russian invasion of Ukraine today, um, are they actively fighting against it, right? Like from our contemporary society in a safe side, we would like to say, oh, they need to be actually raising their voices against the regime and go against it. But also, you know, we know the intricacy of the situation, um, especially if you have a chance to live in the countries where censorship is strong. Right. Um, so we, we know what it is like to go through that. Um, so I'll never say, um, like, I've never studied Kyoto school, like the um, Jinbus Kenkyu. It's, it's a kind of the autobiographical like study of the Kyoto school where I'll defend the Kyoto school to the, to the end of my life. <laughs> I, I've never liked it. I just want to study the history of of Japanese philosophy, and there are majority of thinkers from Tokyo that completely neglected in philosophical studies of contemporary Japanese thought. Um, but I, I do think that some of the things, actually many of the things that Kyoto school thinkers did were surprisingly quite ahead of time. Um, examples like cross-cultural thinking, they came up and argued that maybe East Asian philosophy has uh, values that irreducible to European intellectual frameworks of thinking. That's really progressive, even in the today's standard, right? And um, of course, like sometimes you do have like parts where I want to argue that if you really follow Tanabe's program, he's just advocating republicanism, right? Or if you read Watsuji, his concept of internationalization, is totally talking about this open society of different uh, communities of intellectuals. Then, you know, you can't argue the necessity of imperial house as a center of Japanese culture that like, Watsuji says. So it's like there's inconsistencies uh, within the Kyoto School of philosophers, I think, the text. Um, but I sometimes wonder, it's just because that's really tainted by the time, the, the timing in which they wrote is so tainted that even if you're saying something good, delivery has certain elements that are uh, very problematic. Um, so come back to the recycling, and I want to advocate that. I think 20 years from now, like our children's children, our children would argue that our generation is disastrous, like ecological demons, <laughs> you know, like we are. But does that mean that everybody argue for the ecological thinking were worthless? Um, we would say, no, that person was actually progressive enough for us to give us the footing to be able to talk about this sustainability, uh, something like that. So I do feel, um, you know, some of the contributions that the Kyoto School thinkers made uh, need to be recognized, not at the cost of, um, you know, blinding ourselves to the fact that 1930s and 40s in Japan is probably the most awful time to be intellectuals. And some of the languages that they use are definitely unacceptable today. 
we should never actually repeat the same language. But I think there's got to be a room for, um, you know, hermeneutics of generosity or kind of comprehensive analysis. Okay, if we're going to criticize Watsuji, let's read from point, like first book until last book and try to give the best defense ever possible for that guy. And if we still find it not convincing, that's fine. You know, let's do at least thorough scholarship. That's that's the my my stance. That's uh, that's a really great point, and I think it's definitely a shame that uh, Japanese philosophy, um, especially in the classroom, right, when we teach uh, Japanese history and civilization, um, Japanese philosophy, or in particular the Kyoto School, is often mentioned with such a negative tone. So coming back to your book, uh, which is written for the purpose of educating um, in college uh, classrooms, how do you think uh, we can evaluate the contributions and, um, well, mostly contributions, I hope, that uh, Japanese philosophy did in a relatively objective way uh, by saying that, not, not that I believe there's such a thing as absolute objectivity, but um, in terms of Japanese philosophy, what are some of the ways that you think we can incorporate them in um, the teaching of Japanese history and civilization? Uh, Within the context of Japanese uh, studies, right? So I have a great episode um, to talk about. so I remember I, I re- described this generational differences between James Heisek and then you have next generations that probably like tenure professor of of philosophy today doing a Japanese philosophy, mostly as a side project. Then uh, our generations is kind of, you know, left alone and think we can do whatever we want because they got exhausted with these methodological discussions. Um, so I think it was like, 2000, maybe 19, uh, 18, 17, 18, 19, somewhere around there before pandemic. Um, I went to a conference in Hokkaido University for uh, somebody organized a conference on self-consciousness and it wasn't a philosophy department. But then there's uh, people from other departments and some of the professor teaches the ethics and humanities department. And he came up to me and I said, Hey, you are you the young man that's studying uh, research in Kyoto School? Um, so yeah, I guess like if you call that young, it's okay. Let's yeah, I guess I'm the third generation from the people who studying Kyoto School. Yeah, I'm working on a Kyoto School, and and, and you're doing in Europe. I said yeah, I'm actually studying Japanese philosophy in Europe. So there's a lot of information to process for that guy. He said, I'm actually so and so, and I'm specializing in Kantian philosophy, but I'm working in this. Uh, humanities project, so I do a different um, pedagogical, you know, philosophy or education kind of work. And he said, you know, I actually study at the Kyoto University uh, when I was doing a PhD, and one of my teacher was Nishitani or Nishitani's son, or yeah, Nishitani's son was teaching there. And when I was teaching philosophy there, I really didn't want anything to do with the Kyoto School. I hated the Kyoto School. Everybody was there to study Kyoto School. I'm just sick of it. I purposely didn't take as many courses as possible and stay away from it. And then he lived his entire academic life and became, you know, professor at the 
Hokkaido University, and he told me like, but recently I find it really interesting because Kyoto School of Philosophers, the the really the first generations of thinkers that had original thought, like they tried to do original philosophy, but we should not forget the fact that they were the first generations that actually translated a lot of European concepts into Japanese language. So he said, as contemporary intellectuals doing just regular stuff like philosophy or education or anything that happening in Japanese intellectual community, I realize a lot of languages that I use have so much indebtedness to the Kyoto school that I've been running away for whole life. So I realized like, if you look at their non-philosophical work, right? The, it's, it's a philosophy, it works on philosophy, but so how do we translate the, the concept like categories or how do we translate the concept like idea into Japanese language, right? And how do we make sense of a perception self-awareness. Um, the typical word that we use in contemporary Japanese society definitely had that sort of like comparative shift uh, in 1930s, especially 19, end of 1910s to 1940s. If you started to pick up dictionaries that they made, um, you'll be able to see something really fascinating. And, um, you know, the, the translations that they produced uh, in relation to the um, Western intellectuals, uh, intellectual works, and how the Chinese intellectuals took the Japanese translations culture into the Japanese, uh, Chinese intellectual traditions. I think if you started to pay attention to these, like, cultural receptions, so the Japanese reception of the European concepts, into the Japanese uh, language and how they use in their own way, even like the word like postmodernism. Like if you pay attention to postmodernism in Japanese, they started to use postmodern completely different way than the European conception of postmodernism in in some regard. Um, so I think that aspect of um, Kyoto School philosophy. So it's okay to read them as a fascist. I think it's okay to just read them critically from that perspective, but maybe we put the political things aside for a bit and just see how they're trying to work out the language that they they had to make sense of the European philosophical concepts and trying to digest uh, in, in their framework. Um, maybe that's something that I would um, um, recommend for the Japanese studies department. Indeed, yeah. I definitely agree with that. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for this very enlightening conversation. We thank learned so much. so much about the Kyoto School. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't get uh, uh, much time to talk about Tanabe Hajime, but uh, this is why, uh, listeners, um, if you're interested, if you want to know more about this interesting person, make sure to check out this new book by Takeshi Morisato, Tanabe Hajime and the Kyoto School. Self, world, and knowledge. Also, to learn more about our host, Takeshi, you could check his uh, profile page on the New Books Network um, for his other work and translated um, articles and uh, books. I am Jin Yi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon. <laughs>